0: Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and also heard on other community radio stations like KCEI FM Cultural Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. I would like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you, Walter Parks. If you are interested in more of Walter's music, WalterParks.com is a good place to look. And if you would like to reach out to me, tell me your story, connect with me, give me some insider information from where you are living, JamesNave.com is my website. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. You can go there and email me through my website and I would love to hear from you. I would like to thank Devine Dial for all the good work she does at WPVMFM. Thank you so much, Devine, for everything you do. And if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know I have lots of different people on the show, people from all walks of life. And they come to me by way of old friendships sometimes i have new people that i've never met before sometimes i have people i've known a little bit and would like to get to know more no matter how it goes it's an opportunity for two people to have a great conversation and today i have a new friend someone whom i've never met before we've spoken a couple of times on zoom and gotten to know a bit about each other and his name is rob bowen and he's an insurance agent he owns an insurance company now often in my conversations on this show it's le- i've i've leaned in the in the cultural arts arena the artistic areas the creative areas so why would i be interested in insurance well i submit to you as i begin my conversation with rob that when we make our creative work we are in a sense creating insurance policies policies that will protect us ways to understand who we are ways to communicate and within that communication there's some insurance. assurance as well, that somehow we will know each other better be able to protect ourselves so as we begin this conversation, I am very excited to learn more about insurance so rob welcome to twice five miles radio.
1: Thanks, Navi. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you for inviting me, and it's been a pleasure getting to know you.
0: Well, it's the same here as well. And on that note of insurance, I would like for you to start out by reflecting philosophically on why insurance is an important thing for all of us, and I'll frame that by saying that we all have lots of different kinds of insurance policies that we buy. We have our a lot of people are experiencing the the value of having unemployment insurance right now because a lot of people are are not in, are unemployed. We have insurance for our cars, we have health insurance, we insure many kinds of things, life insurance. So philosophically, why is insurance an important thing?
1: Well, insurance is an important thing because I kind of view without insurance, a lot of the businesses out there and a lot of people would get themselves into quite a bit of trouble. Insurance is a law of large numbers, right? I can insure a million people and we know a certain number of people are gonna have claims against them, which we can now spread out across those million people. Otherwise, there could be a lot of catastrophic events that people could go through. You talked about uh, home insurance or auto insurance. If your home is not insured and you have a fire, you have to pay to rebuild it. You know, a lot of people don't have that kind of money around to rebuild it. So insurance allows you that ability to rebuild. We saw it with the pandemic happen when the businesses got shut down, um, that in- insurance was not there to help those people. You know, unfortunately, or fortunately for the insurance world, we had pandemic exclusions, but we saw the devastation. Um, that a lot of small businesses went under. They went bankrupt. They could not generate enough revenue to keep their their, uh, businesses going. But insurance is that backstop. Insurance is about sending that risk to someone else so you can go about your day and not have to worry about what happens each day to you. For me, insurance is about education and letting the client decide how much risk they wanna take themselves and how much they wanna to send to the insurance companies.
0: Well, and of course, when I think about insurance, I think about my car, as you said, and I think about other my health insurance. So I'm a small customer in the insurance arena. People, when they think about insurance, they don't really think about all of the things that one could insure. I know Lloyd's of London will insure almost anything. So if you're going on a great journey into the the wilderness of Antarctica, they will uh, insure that trip. Or if you have a a 100-foot yacht, somebody has to insure that. Or if you have a big jet, like a Gulf Stream, and it flies 600 miles an hour, Continent to continent, somebody has to insure that. So, how many different kinds of insurances are there? And in your own work, what is the biggest insurance policy you've ever written? Even the most adventuresome insurance policy, if there could be such a thing.
1: <laughs> well, you, you know, you're right. Lords London is the largest and oldest insurance company in the world. It started with a bunch of Gentlemen in a room that decided to, hey, we're going to insure the ships as they came over to the United States. And they would all take a piece of that. Um, so they didn't have as much exposure. But Lloyd's London will insure a quarterback, for example, in the NFL, insure their arm. You're a uh, concert pianist, you could insure your hands, because obviously that's where you're making your money. I have not written any of those bizarre, I'll call them insurance policies. Um, the largest one I've ever had was probably about sixty to 70000 premium. insuring a uh, delivery business Um, and the reason it got so high was that they had had a lot of claims you know so a lot of what insurance is is trying to not file a claim against an insurance company it's about doing the right thing mitigating your risk with training you know there's a lot of uh, very hazardous conditions out there and whether it's manufacturing or these large businesses um, and we've seen those things in the news so it You know it's really on the onus of the business owner to to not file claims those are there as kind of a backdrop you know you had brought up health insurance i do not sell health health insurance so but uh there are policies that are called high deductible policies right where put in x amount of money and they're going to take care of any catastrophic event whether that's a heart attack broken leg and so the insurance is kind of that top layer keeping you out of bankruptcy you know, if you don't have health insurance and you need to have open heart surgery, that's going to cost you a couple hundred thousand dollars. And most people don't have that kind of money. So that's where that kind of insurance would kick in.
0: Yeah. And people who don't have insurance or are not able to get it for a million different reasons. They're really rather vulnerable. I've often thought about that. I, I'm a fan of Insuring everyone. I think if I were the the sovereign, I would just give a universal health insurance to everybody. And my view on that is maybe a little different than others. If I owned a manufacturing company, which I do not, I have a little creativity business, but if I owned a manufacturing company, I likely would be willing to maintain all of the parts of the company at the top level so they just function without any problem at all so if my machine broke down i would call the service provider in and they would polish it all up clean it up and and, and maintain it really well and i've always thought that if somehow we could collectively maintain humanity in the same way i would maintain all of the other machines in my factory, not to discount humanity as machinery. We are definitely human beings, living, breathing, and and thinking and feeling. And yet when it comes to the production aspect of the workplace, we in a sense are biological machines, not robots, even so we're still machines. And I've often wondered why we somehow don't collectively think of humanity In that respect, like, like why wouldn't we maintain people at their top form so they could function at a top level? So it's really interesting to me that we don't think like that, because if we did, it would create a situation that would be really productive for our gross national product.
1: And it's a mindset shift. I mean, obviously, healthcare is a topic that's being discussed, people are very emotional about it, whether one side or the other, but that's a great way to look at it. Because the other problem I think with healthcare, you need to have those annual physicals, right? It's prevention can solve a lot of problems or just knowing will solve a lot of problems. You know, certainly in the US right now, healthcare costs are skyrocketing. People are making decisions based on healthcare, not based on the job it's hard because there's no easy solution. I mean, it's almost like I've heard people say, let's blow up the whole system and start over. And that sounds good, but that's very hard to execute. European countries do have that. Being a veteran, I have access to the VA medical facilities. Socialized medicine, for lack of a better term, there's a lot that can be said that that's a lot of good for humanity, as you say. Keep everyone healthy. Keep everyone at a certain level. You create an environment that you get more productivity out of everybody.
0: So as a member of the VA and with your health insurance through the VA, what do you have as benefits for your health insurance that maybe I wouldn't have?
1: I don't think I have benefits that you don't have. I mean, I don't pay for it. So I guess that's one benefit. Some deductibles and, and some very small co-pays, but I have complete access to it. I do my annual physical. I get my blood pressure medicine through the VA. I got my COVID vaccination through the VA. So I just have access to that, to a healthcare system.
0: Well, when I was um, maybe 38, I decided to go to the doctor each year. And I was encouraged to do that by some friends. And I thought, well, that might be interesting. And the argument my friends made was to say, If you go to the doctor once a year, the doctor will develop a file on you. And as you move through the years, the file will grow and your history will be all in one place. So when you do have problems later down the line, which you will, it's inevitable because we're all moving toward the end, you will have this file and it'll make things easier. And that proved to be true. I had to maintain my own health insurance, and I worked as a freelance creative, as a, as a poet, as a writer, as a performer. So I was always maintaining my own insurance. And fortunately, I was able to have that each year. And now I'm still doing that. It has paid off. You use the term, the VA is socialized medicine. And I wish we would come up with a different word to describe it. It's socialism. It's communism. It's all the isms. And I I really think that's an inaccurate term. What we're attempting to do is to find some sort of healthy equilibrium, a a well-balanced status quo that we all can exist in without a a lot of stress. Now, it is society in the sense that we're all together in this and we are all social and, and we all live in the larger community we call America. And then beyond that, you have the whole world. We live in the world. We can't get away from that either. So I've often wished we could think of another way to name it. And I don't know what that name is.
1: Um, I've heard the term universal healthcare, you know, and I think you're right. Because when you start using the term socialist, communist, that triggers a lot of people of what they how they view that term whether it's right or wrong, it does. People have very strong opinions on either side of that issue. I believe that people should have basic health care needs taken care of. I think that's important. How you do that is a whole other conversation um, because I'm a believer in the prevention side of this. Again, you said when you were 38, you had a conversation and you go every year and now you have a, a nice file on you as we all get older. It, Keeps the overall cost down significantly, which is a good thing. But I think people are more healthy. You know, people can make the right choices. And, you know, we all strive to be healthy. You know, most of us, me included, you know, do a, an okay job. You know, not great job, but an okay job. We all know what we shouldn't be doing, but we tend to like to do those things. If you can provide just the basic healthcare, annual physicals, basic medicines, just learning healthy habits. You know, that's education for people.
0: Funny enough, healthy habits are fairly easy to to follow. Really, when you think about it, and you don't have to be all that rigorous to do it. You can take a walk every day. You can shop on the fringes of the grocery store. So you go to the, the vegetables and you go to the to the fish market and you go around and get the good meat or whatever you're you're going to eat. But it's all on the on the outside of the market rather than in in the middle where the more processed foods are. So it's fairly easy to do that if you stop for a moment and think socially how do i fit in socially to my family what kind of health legacy do i want to leave or what kind of health example do i want to set for my for my children and those people around me when we think like a member of a community and we set better examples for ourselves we'll also set better examples for the people around us. And I also wanted to say, when I've gone to the doctor every year, my doctor, her name is Elizabeth Torton Dr. Elizabeth Torton She's in Asheville. And I pay a subscription to have access to her. So she doesn't take insurance. She just takes the one, she just takes the payment each year and she's available almost like a house call doctor she Mm -hmm. comes whenever you need her although we do it on zoom or when i call her and i don't have that many health problems so i feel confident that i can am well taken care of there is the placebo effect i go every year and i feel better Mm -hmm. and the next year i go and i feel better (laughs) so i don't know if that really means much but i think the placebo effect may may be a factor in in one's well-being
1: Well, and and I think what it also does is, as we all get older, health is a gradual decline. It's not something you notice every day. And to have someone who is a third party, we'll call it a doctor, to look at you and say, hey, wait a minute, last year you were here, this year you're here, you're you're moving downward in whatever metric they're using. Um, It's something to watch for, right? So maybe there are things in the future you can do. Like you said, the healthy lifestyle. It sounds easy but people struggle with that. And I, I agree with you hundred percent when it comes to eating good and exercise people think it's really, really difficult to do. And it's not that difficult. It's taking little tiny steps and just repeating them. Like you said, go for a walk. No, one's asking you to be an Olympic athlete, right? I think we all feel we've got to lift weights and, and be a marathon runner or be a triathlon and all that. If you go out for a walk for a, 20 minutes, half an hour. That's more than you did yesterday, right? And now keep doing that for a year or 2 years. Those you know it's it's like compounding interest. It's the same concept and you can do healthy things. You can walk a little bit, you know, walk up the stairs or don't park right next to the store. There's a lot of people that talk about that and I think you're right. Have a ritual, stick to it and if it's healthy that's a good thing cuz you'll keep doing it you'll feel better i think too many people give up too quickly expect immediate results that's not the way this works right we're all impatient as human beings i think you know i want to lose 10 pounds well that's not going to happen overnight right I and mean, if it does it's probably not healthy do a gradual thing and and uh you know you'll see the results down the road you just got to be patient and wait for it
0: I love the suggestion of parking a bit of a distance from the store and, and walking across the parking lot. you got to be careful when you're walking across the parking lot. Somebody might bump into you.
1: Well, yeah, yeah. Get, <laughs> make sure your head's on a
0: swivel. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. You know, <laughs> you, you know, there's a. I read a story recently about a grocery store in Alaska, and the customers in the grocery store were complaining because the ravens in the parking lot had figured out how to steal food from their grocery bags. You roll your card out to the car and then you open the trunk and get ready to put your grocery bag in. So you put one grocery bag in and then you reach back for the other one and your steak is gone because the raven came down and got it. And they were complaining, the customers were complaining because they said, well, the ravens, they have this strategy. One raven will divert me and then the other raven will get my food. (laughs) And so I'm thinking of the dangers of the parking lot. You have the cars that might bump into you and you have the ravens as well. And I have noticed here in Taos, New Mexico, we do have ravens and they do hang around the grocery stores. They're really healthy looking ravens. And so I I think there's a raven conspiracy for stealing food from people's bags that that exist in, in the world. But I think it's a delightful idea, even though you don't wanna lose your fish to the raven.
1: Well, but it makes sense. I mean, they're trying to survive too, right? And that's a lot easier to grab your steak than to go out and have to hunt something down. I don't know what ravens normally eat. It's a lot easier, again, just to grab the whole steak and fly away as opposed to you know being out in the wild. There's a lot of ways I think people can adjust what they're doing um, in little ways. I think people like to go big early, and that tends to not work because it becomes hard. It, you get sore, you, you know, it changes your lifestyle. Try a little something small. I mean, I, you know, I have conversations with friends of mine about that and, you know, oh, I'm, I need to lose X number of pounds or I need to, whatever they need to do. And I'm like, it's going to take you a ton, some time to do that. Do it slowly, do it. And that's better for you medically. From what I understand, don't have this huge expectation. Cause then you're just setting yourself up for failure because you're gonna be disappointed with the results.
0: And coming back for a moment to the Ravens and tying the, the idea of the Ravens in the parking lot to being disappointed with the results. One thing I think we could use more of is a sense of humor. And I think the Ravens seem to, in their effort to survive, they actually somehow seem to have a sense of humor about what they're doing. Now, I I can't talk to the Ravens. I don't know for sure if they (laughs) do have a sense of humor or not, but I have watched them fly and I've watched them play in the air when they fly and they fly and play like they were in a circus. So I think if we have more of a sense of humor about the work we do, about our health, so when we walk, if we walk with a smile, if we laugh a bit at ourselves, because maybe we are a bit goofy today, or you, you, we did something kind of dumb today, but it was sort of funny. So if we can have a sense of humor, that may be as good an insurance policy as almost anything.
1: I agree. I, I think people should not take themselves as seriously as a lot of people do. And I'm included in that. Put a smile on. That makes a big difference to your psyche. I mean, they I've taken some sales classes where they teach you to smile while you're on the phone. And it changes your tone of voice when you're talking to someone. And it works. I mean, if you're not in a good mood and you're talking to someone, you're gonna sound like that on the phone. And if you have a smile on your face or you say something goofy or you you know, try to make someone laugh in a in a positive way. I mean, that changes the whole conversation. I think that's important.
0: In voiceover work, one of the first things you learn out of the gate is smile when you're reading your text, mm-hmm. and the smile does cue cue you in a way that maybe creates happy endorphins inside of you. I don't know for sure, but I do know when I smile, I feel better. I'm smiling right now, and it's great. We've been talking about ravens and talking about walking across parking lots and health insurance and socialism and and all these other things. I also know that you mentioned you have access to the VA hospital, which leads me into asking you about your involvement with the military. I know you served. I know you served and you did it with distinction. So, would you tell us a bit about your relationship with your military service and why that means so much to you?
1: Uh, That's a great question. I was in the US Navy for eight years. I was an E2 naval flight officer, which means I had the pleasure to be in the back end of a plane and fly off of aircraft carriers. My military experience was awesome. I tell people I would do it again in a heartbeat. I loved everything I did. Part of it was probably because I maybe I was a little young and dumb, didn't understand all the risks that are involved. But the experience of the military for me was life-changing. I didn't realize it when I was younger, but I realize it now, because I was taught teamwork, watching someone's back. It is a very structured environment that you're in. But when I was in the Navy, there's times where you had to get things done. I mean, the military being part of the federal government is a very large bureaucracy for, for, for a reason. My military experience was, was awesome. I think it set me on a, on a good glide path for certain successes in the civilian world. And now in my later years, as I'm calling this, it allows me to help other veterans help veteran organizations and really leverage what I'm doing in my insurance agency to make a difference. And I'm a preacher of if we all do a little, we can have a huge impact. You know, back to your comment about healthcare, or taking a 30-minute walk for the day. That makes a big difference in your health. And the same thing applies here. You know, it's about helping others that are maybe a little less fortunate, maybe need a little hand up maybe need a little kick in the butt once in a while. There's a certain way that veterans talk to each other. um, And that's not meant as an arrogant thing, it's just the way it is. And fortunately for me, I'm able to leverage that to help veterans, whether it's young kids coming out or older guys in the Vietnam era who have a lot of health issues. There is a lot of need out there in the world and it's not just veterans. A lot of what I'm part of is it doesn't directly deal with veterans. It's about giving back. It's about helping someone else. Um, And that's for me is what it's all about.
0: You said you were your job was to fly in an aircraft off of an aircraft carrier. Aircraft carriers are rather large. Uh, Until you pull back a few miles and you look down at the ocean and, of course, the ocean dwarfs the aircraft carrier, it's a tiny little thing, compared to the big oceans. What did it feel like when you were sitting in the airplane getting ready to take off and as you lifted off from the aircraft carrier, what, what did it feel like and when you were coming back in landing on the aircraft carrier how did that feel.
1: We used to joke, it's the best roller coaster ride in the world. So as the plane gets launched off, uh, a lot of G-forces, so you're pushed back in your seat, you get about, I don't know, I think it was like five to seven times your weight was pushing against your body. And then all of a sudden there's that release at the end as you come off the front of the boat and now you're airborne. It always amazed me that it worked every time. You know, there's so many different things that have to go right for that to happen. And there's so many things that can go wrong that, rarely happened. Um, But it was, it was a great ride. And, you know, when you're in the middle of the day, I spent some time in the Persian Gulf, which was very flat, not a lot of currents, not a lot of waves. That, that was fun because the ship's not moving. You can see the pilots can see I was in the back looking at a little window. That's about all I could see or looking up in the front of the plane. But when you do it at night, where you do it in bad seas, that's where it gets interesting and that's where the training comes in. But it was it was a great, great experience to, to go through that. What amazed me always was on the flight deck were a bunch of kids, a couple hundred kids launching these planes. And it was a perfectly choreographed every single time. It's the most dangerous place in the world other than combat from what I've been told, um, yet very few injuries occurred. It was a lot of fun, honestly.
0: I'm thinking about the big aircraft carrier, how stable it would be in the ocean. And yet again, back to how big the ocean can be. And when the ocean decides to be rough, it can be rough with anything. There's nothing we could build that could avoid the ocean's power in terms of disruption. Mm -hmm. When you left the deck and flew up into the air, of course you get way up in the sky and everything's calm. What happens when you're coming back and suddenly you come into very stormy seas and you still have to land the plane? Do you abort the mission if you can't land and wait for the seas to calm and circle around? Or do you just hold your breath and land even if the hurricane is hitting?
1: You would bring it aboard. A lot of times it depends on where you were in the world because at some point you're going to run out of gas. Um, so you do have to land and they would it didn't really matter the weather there were some days where the visibility was very low or there was other issues where we would not go flying but again we're training to be in combat so combat doesn't care about the weather so we had the practice so to speak in those environments and i did a northern pacific cruise up by the aleutian island chain and we had 40 50 foot seas and the flight deck was moving and water was coming up. And you just try to time it. I mean, it was all about timing the, the plane coming over the back of the carrier as the back of the carrier came up into the plane.
0: Did they have to make more than one round sometimes? Did you oh, yeah. abort and then you come back and you keep yeah. trying? When they fuel the plane, do they put enough fuel in the plane to accommodate the double, triple landings? It-
1: Yes, you you, you always launched with a full bag of fuel is what we called it. As you came down, every other plane on the carrier was able to aerial refuel so they could always get air they could get more fuel while they were airborne. My plane could not do that. So we got to the point where we had to either go to another airfield or we had to come in. That could always get interesting. You always wanted to be close to another airfield so in case you because you wanted to make sure you had enough fuel to get from the ship, back to the airfield. So we always had, it was called bingo fuel, which meant when you get below it, um, you don't wanna get below it, but when you got close to it, you had to make a choice. Am I coming aboard or are we flying to another airfield? Because number one, it's a very expensive plane. Number two, there was five of us in it.
0: What kind of plane was it?
1: I was in an E2C Hawkeye. We were the radar plane off the carrier. So think of us as airborne air traffic control the air traffic control that control all the commercial airliners, turn left, go up to this altitude, turn right. And we could also see for hundreds of miles around us. We were called the eyes of the fleet. So we could see everybody and we could control, we had radios, we could talk to people, things like that.
0: Did you ever have a dramatic story that really surprised you? And could you tell us what that might've been?
1: I think the only dramatic story was one night up in the Aleutian Island chain, we had a, a young F-18 driver who was brand new, had trouble landing aboard the carrier. He just, he, it, he came a couple times, came a couple times and just couldn't get it. He was aborting too quickly. We were above the plane and we got to the point where our fuel was getting low. So he had to land. We were the last plane home. We had to land after everyone else. This kid came around three or four times and just the ship was pitching and doing all kinds of weird stuff. And finally, one of our senior officers who was airborne literally flew side by side with him coming into the carrier. Side by side, which is unheard of in the Navy. And he talked him in. And I'm listening to the radio as this commander's talking to this kid. And he was a kid. He was 25 years old and talked them right in to landing. That's the kind of stuff you don't hear about. That's the kind of stuff that makes these guys amazing that are bringing these planes aboard these carriers.
0: You know, I'd never thought about two airplanes approaching the carrier at the same time. So you were saying the commander flew beside the rookie plane by plane, the same plane, I, I imagine the, the jets, right? Yeah, F-18s, yeah, the jet. yeah, F-18. so these are very fast, very expensive mm-hmm. airplanes. So the commander's flying wing to wing almost to guide this rookie with confidence into the landing chute. So the commander had to stay above the sea, not go down too far, instruct the rookie and at the last minute, veer off into the air and come back around and land his plane as well. So I
1: listened to the radio the whole time as they as they was talking him down. And basically, mm-hmm. even the commander says, "Everybody, shut up on this circuit. You shut up." And he just talked this this kid in. And he was a kid, and he talked him in, and you know, saved him, got the plane aboard, came back down, and then we were able to land. And you know, everyone went to bed, and we did it the next day.
0: Now that's quite a scene. I've never seen that in the movies and I've never even heard anybody (laughs) even do such a thing. But how far above the sea does the aircraft carrier sit the landing deck?
1: It's about 70 feet. The carriers I I was on were 70 feet. I think today's are a little bit higher, but not much.
0: And what speed was the commander and the rookie flying at as they approached the landing strip?
1: If my memory serves me, it's about 150 to 165 knots.
0: 150, 165 knots would be what in miles per hour?
1: About 120 miles per hour, I believe. They're moving.
0: Flying at 120 miles per hour, and he's 70 feet above the sea. Mm-hmm. That requires a steady hand.
1: Oh, yes. And you got to remember at that point, the plane is what would call dirty. Dirty means as the flaps were down. So you're very vulnerable at that point, right? You're right near that stall speed. You need air, you need wind across the wings to keep airborne. So you're now at that close to speed where if if you slow down a little bit more, you're gonna you're gonna start dropping. Flying 500 miles an hour, you're cruising, right? That's not a problem. When you're down low and you're coming into land, you're right at that stall speed. So you have to be very careful. So any little mistake could cause
0: a problem. And the commander also knew. The bigger mistake was sitting right in front of everybody, which is if the rookie misses and crashes on the deck, then you flying up there in the sky have nowhere to go.
1: Yeah. And remember, too, there's about there's a couple hundred people on that flight deck. So you've put a couple hundred people at risk at this point. You have a plane come in that crashes. You're taking out other people. You want to get that thing aboard safely and correctly every single time.
0: Plus all the gear that you would take along with the people if you crashed on the deck. Yep. Yep.
1: And and there's a lot of other planes on the flight deck. There's a lot of other people on the flight deck. The goal of every day was to make sure no one got hurt.
0: Well, it keeps you awake, I would think.
1: Oh, yeah. It's a very dangerous place. A lot of things can happen up there.
0: Could you give us a sense of how big the deck actually is in comparison to a football field or
1: The carriers I was on, they were the old diesel boats. They're about four and a half acres from what I remember. And the newer ones are about six acres.
0: Six acres. So when you look at an airport like the Atlanta Mm -hmm. airport or JFK or Denver international, how big are those airports in terms of their landing strips? Do you know?
1: Well, probably the better metric is most of those runways are about two to two and a half miles. Right, so you have two, two and a half miles to land slow down and then start taxing on a carrier you're coming in and you probably have 150 feet. Now you have a wire you're hooking to that's slowing you down, but if you even go from one end of the carrier to the other it's only a couple hundred feet.
0: So the wire is what stops the airplane.
1: That's correct. Yep, there's an arresting gear wire. There's four of them across the back of the boat and you have a tail hook on the back of the plane and you're trying to catch the three wire.
0: So basically when you're landing the airplane, you're actually not landing on the carrier, you're landing in the wire chutes. You have to catch those wires.
1: Yep, a flight deck is angled. So you're landing the angle that goes off to the left is where you're landing and there's four wires there. So you have hopefully as you're landing, you go to full military power. So if you miss the wires or your hook misses the wires, you now have enough airspeed to get back off and come around and do it again.
0: That must be why when Navy pilots show up to the employment office of one of the big airlines, the people are glad to see them.
1: And there's a lot of veterans, whether it's Navy, whether it's Air Force, Um, there's a lot of veterans that fly the commercial airliners because it's a different kind of flying, obviously, but they have so many hours of flight time and they're so well-trained. A friend of mine said, flying's not hard. Landing's hard and emergencies are hard. So it's how you handle that emergency when a light goes on or you have an engine fire. And you see that in the news, right? You see it, you know, the one plane that had the big engine fire over the Southwest. Those pilots did a great job. They had one engine and those planes can fly with one engine, but they had a fire in the other one and they were able to sh- shut it down, land the plane and everyone survived. That's when you quote, make your money.
0: And what happened to the rookie?
1: He kept going. They always talk about in the military, you're going to have those nights. You're going to get scared. You know, no one admitted it back then, but that's what happens. And he was fine the next day. They, they put him on the flight schedule. He was the first plane off.
0: Bravo that's for him. What you, do, you know, so,
1: you fall off the bike, you get right back on it.
0: No wonder what his career was like after that. Did you keep up with him or?
1: N- not really. Um, I know when we, that the rest of that cruise, he really did a great job. You know, he didn't have any more problems at the back of the boat. He became, I would imagine, became a very good pilot because he learned a really good lesson that night.
0: Yeah. You well, know? he also learned that the commander was more than just somebody who gave an order.
1: Yeah. Commander, I mean, at the end of the day, look, he risked his life for that kid, with no forethought to it. Just this is what I'm going to do.
0: That's amazing. That makes you a little teary up, you know? Yeah.
1: Yep. That's the, but that's why he's a commander, right? That's my view.
0: That's that's exactly <laughs> right. That's what you do. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, it's there, your no thought process.
0: Not everybody has that. They don't have that kind of um, whatever it takes. And as we move toward the end of this, I I do want to ask you about the flag, because your company is named after the flag, and you and I talked about how much you appreciate the American flag, so I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell us why.
1: For me, as a veteran, the American flag means a lot to me. Um, The way that the training I went through, the things I did, we obviously in the military would fly the flag, You know, the show in the flag they always talked about, uh, especially in the Navy, the flag means a lot to me in the military. We decided to join the military to defend that flag. And there's some great iconic pictures. Um, Irojima comes to mind. There's many others out there. To me, it's a powerful symbol of this great country that we all live in. I love this country. I mean, we're not perfect. We've made mistakes. We've done some dumb things. I mean, that's not what this is about. I decided when in my early twenties to join the military, I didn't join to defend the flag. I didn't understand that in my twenties, but now I understand it a little bit better. So for me, the other thing too, about the flag is it's, you know, it's about believing in something strongly. So I, I can leverage that thought process to believe in helping people to believe in trying to do the right thing. And that's what's important. So the flag is a symbol, it's a powerful symbol to some people, to other people it's not, and that's okay too, it is what it is. And we all have different opinions, but that's what makes, I believe this country great is that we have the ability to have our opinions. We have the ability to speak our minds.
0: I'm struck, but when you said I went into the military when I was young, I didn't quite know what defending the flag meant now you're older you've had some experience with life what does defending the flag mean for you what are you defending
1: well for me now since i'm not in the military it means making this country as good as we can you know it's about helping other people out if there are people who for example um there's during covid we saw a lot of people having food issues we'll call it Um, People were hungry, people didn't have jobs. It's about helping those people out. You know, we're a great country, we're a huge country. We have a lot of resources. We need to leverage those resources to help people. For example, one of the things that always gets me is there are, I don't know what the number is, but there's a lot of children that go hungry. That's wrong, plain and simple. I don't know the answer. There's a lot of answers to that question. We are one of the greatest countries in the world. You know, there's other big countries, there's other countries that do wonderful things. We should be able to take care of those kind of people. That kind of stuff shouldn't happen. So that's really what it means for me is that the flag becomes my symbol, symbol becomes my North Star to to make that kind of stuff happen. Same thing in my work with veterans. There's a lot of veterans that come back with issues, PTSD, um, way too many veterans committing suicide right now. they struggle with a transition into the civilian world. So I can help that too. I'm not fixing the problem, but I can be a part of it and and around other organizations, other people, we can can solve some of our problems, I believe.
0: I have always appreciated the American flag and it has represented to me uh, all the ideals that you express. And sometimes when I look at it, I feel disappointment because I feel like we as a country have fallen short. Doesn't mean when one falls short, you stay down and are not able to get up. So my relationship with the flag has been one that has gone back and forth. Sometimes I look at this country critically and I think, why, why are we so clumsy? And then other times I look at this country and I'm just absolutely amazed at how well we function. We say United States, but I think we live in United regions, United communities. Each community changes, each one is different. Tiny little villages, almost maybe United villages. What's the phrase, it takes a village so we are united in our village mentality. And so when I think of the American flag, I think of uniting, as well as sometimes I think of some of the things we've done under the flag. I'm not proud of. I am ashamed of. But that doesn't mean I'm ashamed of the country. It means I'm ashamed of those that behavior, just like people behave. A country behaves as well.
1: That's what makes America great is that everyone can have their own views of whether it's the flag, whether it's the personal views, but I think that's what makes things great. And you're right. You're hundred percent right. There's things that the, we'll call it the U S has done that are not good. And there's things that we've done that are spectacular. There is that point where you're like, come on, we can do better than this. And I think everyone can say that about anybody. And we all have to understand that's not a criticism. It's just a positive reinforcement of, hey, let's try to do better.
0: And maybe on the note of criticism, there are two kinds of criticism. The kind of criticism that tears a person apart and leaves them in shreds and they can never get back up again and they carry it for the rest of their lives. And then there's the kind of criticism that has a suggestion in it, a kind of Mm -hmm. criticism that celebrates the appreciative nature of something, the way something works and hopes to make it work better.
1: I agree with you 100%. I think the term is constructive criticism is what I remember growing up. You're right. None of us are perfect. We all try to do the right thing. We all try to do the best of of our abilities. We all are different people. When you are criticizing someone, you should be coming from the ability to help them not to rip them down. I like the way you said that because we've all seen that and that doesn't help anybody. It makes the person who did it maybe feel good. I don't know because I don't do that or I try not to do that. If you're coming from the right place with criticism, I think it works because people want to get better.
0: And coming back to the rookie and the commander, which is a great title for a story.
1: Yeah, it is. The,
0: <laughs> the commander was actually criticizing the rookie by flying alongside the rookie as the rookie was trying to land. That was a kind of criticism, a teaching opportunity. And I imagine after the rookie managed to land the plane, get out, take a shower and go to the briefing room, the rookie received some criticism. And hopefully the rookie was able to next time around land the plane. Yep,
1: And and you're 100% correct. There's, There's always the after action report where you talk about what happened but it's not personal that's the other side of it it's just hey here's what you did here's what you can do better the next time here's what we did and let's all learn from it and that was a big deal in the military was those after action reports of let's figure out what we did wrong not point fingers but let's figure out what we did wrong and how we can all do better again so this this situation has less of a chance of happening again
0: Gosh, that's a wonderful way to close our time together. I really appreciate that comment. And, and as we go, would you tell our audience how they could reach out to you, get in touch with you, the name of your business and that sort of thing?
1: Okay. Well, thank you, Navi. My, um, again, the name of my business is Patriotic Insurance Group. I'm an insurance agent in the Northeast. My office is in uh, New York, upstate New York. Uh, just north of Manhattan. Phone number is 845-610-5700. would love to chat with people. This was a very interesting podcast for me. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. So if people have opinions or have thoughts and would just like to chat with me, if you're interested in helping veterans, also please reach out to me.
0: And say your website.
1: Uh, insuranceleadership.com.
0: Insuranceleadership.com. If any of you out there are interested in helping with veterans and want to know more about how you can do that, just reach out to Rob Boyne and he will be happy to tell you.
1: Thank you, Navi. I really appreciate This is an honor being with you today and uh, have have a wonderful day.
0: I appreciate your time and, and maybe we'll talk again soon. Sounds good. Thank you so much. And there you go, my friends, a good conversation with Rob Boyne about insurance. Insurance in the more expanded way one would think of insuring oneself. And we do indeed insure ourselves with car insurance, life insurance, homeowners insurance, etc., etc. And we are fortunate to have people in the world like Rob who can help us figure out how to insure all of the things we need to insure. My nephew, John Hamlin, who lives in Franklin, North Carolina, has a state farm insurance agency. I can't say I know all that much about insurance. John certainly has made a good success of it in the little town called Franklin. I do have a lot of respect for people who spend their time thinking about how to help people in in the community. So I'm glad that I have my car insurance and I'm glad that I have my health insurance and all the other things that I need to have insured around me moving a little bit beyond that as we talked about in the interview insurance can go well beyond paying the premium for a policy like your car insurance we insure ourselves in many ways and by uh, insuring we also create an assurance I am assured of of my welfare because i pay attention say to my health which rob and i talked a bit about in this interview and i also did not expect to go as deeply into rob's story about the aircraft carrier as we did which brings me around to another kind of insurance there's the insurance of story And we have stories that are banked inside of our imaginations, inside of our experience base. And when I think about ensuring ourselves with story, it's a different kind of safety. When you share your story with someone near to you or maybe a few people who gather around the table, you're creating a sense of, of of a safety, uh, you're giving some experience. You're giving people a way to, to take s- the the listening experience they had with you, and and turn it into something that might be beneficial for, for for them. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, yesterday. Her name is Nancy, and Nancy was asking me about storytelling. She said, I I would like to tell tell a story. I I, I want to learn how to do that. She said, I was listening to someone online, an online course, and they were saying over and over, you have to tell your story. And I said to Nancy, the idea of telling your story is just a little bit off base. Now, I know you may repel from that notion for a moment, but what I mean by that is when you tell a story you are telling a part of your story we can never tell our story you can never tell your story I can never tell my story I can tell a part of it and the reason I said telling your story is a little bit bigger than what you might want to take on when I was talking to Nancy what I was trying to emphasize to her I was trying to say, and I believe I succeeded at this, that if you take a little bit of what you've experienced, not much, and keep it really simple, give it a beginning, a middle, and an end, you will have a perfectly fine story, a story that will connect your readers to, to you or should I say your listeners, depending on how you tell your story, you could write it on the page, or you could record it like I'm recording this story now, or you could tell it to somebody in person. However you tell your story, your story starts to belong to the person listening as much as it belongs to you. Now that's an idea that I I really, really enjoy and am glad to know about. And turning back a moment to Rob's story about flying above the aircraft carrier and having the rookie pilot landing in the rough seas, and the commander pulling the pilot onto the ship and getting the landing to happen, and then the pilot returning again the next day and flying off again to have a successful career as a pilot. That's a story. It's not really Rob's full story it's not the pilot's full story nor is it the commander's full story but it is a slice of a story and the beauty of telling stories like that i think can can emerge when you understand the simplicity that you are perfectly capable of bringing to the story for example today i decided to make a treat i was going to make some hot chocolate so I put my cup on the counter, and and I was very excited. I didn't have much much soy milk left, but I put it in my my yete cup, and I was going to shake it up with some hot chocolate or some chocolate, and then put some honey in it, and which I which I was getting ready to do. And I reached up to the cupboard to get my hot chocolate, and I tipped the entire cup over, and the whole thing spilled out on the counter. I no longer had a cup full of soy milk to put my chocolate and honey in. Now, I was really disappointed with that. I grumped around and muttered and was, a, was as my, my childhood books would say, I was the billy goat gruff snorting around. And then I finally re-established my cup, poured some more soy milk in it, and went on my way. Now that's not a very dramatic story, but it does have a beginning and a middle and an end. And when we tell stories, we can start with something that simple. And the key to that story was what did I do after the milk fell over or the soy milk fell over? What did I do? How did I respond? I'm here to say I responded rather poorly. I, I uttered some uh, unmentionable words and then, you know, berated myself a bit and finally went on to make my, my chocolate. So it's not only the story you tell, but it's, it's the, the, the under meaning of the story. Just like with Rob and the commander and the, and the pilot, the rookie pilot. They worked together. They critiqued each other and managed to soar into the sky. So insurance to ensure yourself you can do that in many ways and one of the ways you can ensure yourself is to drop into your own story drop in and tell a bit of it every now and then and if you have no audience tell the story to yourself relax into it be happy that that you're alive and part of a bigger story being told day in and day out and that you can participate in ways that will influence people so they m- move in hopefully positive directions you can make them feel good with your stories just as rob excited me with his story i felt great after hearing the story about the aircraft carrier i had no idea that kind of stuff works that way so off we go sailing into the great blue beyond in. Whatever stories we have to tell. And I really do appreciate you listening to this story. And I appreciate you listening to this show, Twice 5 Miles Radio. Fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, streaming online, wpvmfm.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI-FM, out of Taos, New Mexico, Cultural Energy Radio. Walter Parks, you play a great tune, my friend, and I'm so grateful that you add your soundtrack to to this show every week i really do appreciate our theme song thank you for composing that walter walterparks.com if you'd like to know more about walter's music if any of you would like to reach out to me you can do that jamesnave.com nave is spelled n-a-v-e i would love to get a message from you i'm always open to talking about storytelling and how it's done and how you can go about engaging it and i love to talk about creativity and i i love to hear what other people think about creativity and i i would like it if you gave me some some ideas on how you vibed with the story of the commander and the rookie i i enjoyed it quite a bit and i hope you did too and on that note i would like to say once again thank you ever so much for listening And please do tune in again next time. Until then, I'll catch you on the turnaround somewhere down the line.